good friend of ours. Uh, just kidding. But seriously, like there's monkeys everywhere. I mean, what you're looking at there, like that's, that's just the way it is. And so I know right now 30 of you uh, next uh, March are going to be uh, taking the trip and journey. We're really excited. And I want to just share briefly with you, uh, we're interested in doing, in doing good biblical short-term mission. Uh, what I realized is, and when we went down there, is um, most missionaries don't enjoy short-term mission trips because the short-term mission trips are very uh, selfish, very focused on the group going down, very focused on how they can be encouraged and not the missionaries themselves. And so when I went down, just so you know, I said, hey, look, Steve, we're not here to save Ecuador. We're here to support you in the work that you're doing here because you're the one that's here. Right, So we're going to come down, support you, so that when we leave, maybe some energy has been stirred relationally for you, but that it doesn't matter whether we're there or not. Are you with me, church? That's what good, healthy, biblical short-term looks like, so we're excited about that. All right, Daniel and the lion's den. Are you ready to do it? You ready to do it? Now, many of you grew up in the church, I realize, and so you have this picture of this story in your mind. And so I've, I've done us a, a little a research compiled a few pictures, some artist renditions of Daniel in the Lion's Den. And I'd like to show uh, a few of these to you if I could. Uh, first slide. Uh, I call this uh, Madagascar. Uh, this is uh, the Madagascar version. This is where Daniel becomes best, best friends with the lions, right? Like somehow the lions are talking to him and they're like conversing and, and the lion's den actually turns into one big party, right? So I call that Madagascar. Uh, next slide. Uh, this, is the, this is the young boy uh, version. Um, Daniel looks to be about seven, uh, you know, and a half here in this picture. And uh, these lions, you know, they're all just kind of singing kumbaya there in the cave, all right? Next slide. Uh, I call this uh, the, the family version um, because, you know, everything is nice and cozy. The lions are sleeping. They've even incurred a mouse there on the paw, right? Like, everyone's happy. This is just a beautiful portrayal, right? And, of course, you got the commies looking down from above. Uh, I call this the Rambo version um, for obvious reasons here. Uh, this is a coloring rendition for some reason. And, you know, so we, the, everyone's taking some liberty here from the scripture about what this looks like. But Daniel's always like petting the lions, right? Like, I'm not sure that this would have been the case. I don't know. But before we hit the next slide, there have been many, many plays done with Daniel and the lions. Then, and and I've, I've found this picture. This is one uh, interpretive uh, Apparently we have Daniel there at the bottom and the three lines there at the top. And uh, this is, uh, it's, it's amazing what you can find on the internet, right? Now, now, I think and I hope, take that down please, I'm scared, right? Like, I, I think and I hope, for those of you that have been joining us, you already know because of our study that the, what we're about to learn is something probably drastically different than what you grew up with. Daniel is not a boy, it's probably, they probably threw his walker down in the lion's den when they threw him down there, right? He's, he's 80 plus, probably reaching 90 years old. He's not a boy. Many of the pictures that you'll find, especially in children's Bibles, portray Daniel as this little lad that gets chucked in with the hungry lions. Not the case. He's an elderly man. He's at the end of his rope here. And, and literally here in a few years, he will die uh, of various reasons that we'll talk about later. So tonight... The real, biblical, authentic, genuine Daniel in the lion's den. You guys ready to go? Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, everyone. I think it's on page 627 or 8 in your pew Bible. Super um, 630. I was way off. Thank you so much. Appreciate all of you guys being here tonight. Excited to teach this. Let's look here in verse 1. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. All right, much to catch up on. You remember last week, we saw the fall of the Babylonian empire in one drunken night. Belshazzar hosts this huge party of a thousand people, and while he's hosting this party feeling secure, the Medo-Persian army has built a dam in the river, and they're going underneath the 85-foot thick walls of Babylon. They capture Belshazzar, they kill both Belshazzar and his father, Nebuchadnezzar, execute them, and the whole Babylonian empire crumbles in one night. So who takes over? Apparently, this man named who? This man named who in verse 1? Darius. Big question, though. Who is Darius? There is no archaeological evidence that a man named Darius ever existed, which presents some problems for those of us like us who are trying to legitimize the fact that Daniel is real, authentic scripture, right? Well, I think there's a few theories. The theory that I'm most bent to is the, the evidence that we see that of the six rulers of the Medo-Persian army during its empire, every king bore the name uh, Darius as a title. Uh, For instance, in Egypt, they would call their kings what? Pharaoh, right? In uh, in, uh, the, the Romans would call their kings what? Caesar, okay? So there would be different men that would still bear the name Pharaoh, still bear the name Caesar. So in this case, I believe this is Cyrus, the first king of the Medo-Persian empire, and I believe that they're just calling him Darius as a sort of title, title like Pharaoh or Caesar. We together. It makes especially sense because what we see is he's setting up the government. If this was someone that was of lesser value in the kingdom, they probably wouldn't be setting up the government. But this guy has the power and the authority to set up the whole system. And what's the system? 120 satraps and over them three what? Presidentes, right? We're going to keep working on our Spanish as we're headed to Ecuador, right? Presidente. Three presidents, one of whom was who? Was Daniel. Apparently, something has happened between the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire, the takeover of the Medes and Persians, that has awarded Daniel continued favor. Many of of the Jews have been deported back to Jerusalem. Cyrus comes in, and in his first year sends many of the exiled, kidnapped Jews back to Jerusalem. In fact, scholars would say that Cyrus was a very intelligent, good king, ruler, monarch in general, right? Sends a lot of the Jews back, but Daniel stays behind. He's gained favor again, and he finds himself, literally the scripture says, one of the tops of the next kingdom that has come behind Babylon. This is unbelievable. At the end of verse 3, it says this, And the king planned to what? Set him over the whole kingdom. God continually gives Daniel favor. Now, before we take any steps further, I have a question to ask you. How do you normally respond to visual aspects of grace? In other words, you see someone a friend of yours, a close friend of yours, receives some kind of blessing. It's grace. What's your normal response? Is it thanksgiving? 
or is it envy? I want to contend to you, and I'll explain this a little bit further, that everything in our world is grace. Grace is we get what we don't what? What we don't deserve. Everything is grace. Everything that you have, the very beating heart that you own and possess right now is grace. You don't deserve it, but God in His love and mercy and graciousness has provided you with it. It's grace. Problem arises when you start noticing that others have received a little bit teeny-witsy-bitsy more grace than you have, right? You start to look across the hall and you notice that someone has received a little bit more of things that they, uh, than, than they deserve than you have. And so in that moment, you have a couple different options. You either give thanks to the one who is gracious, or you have deep-rooted envy in your heart. And the very precious thing that the gospel affords us, grace, becomes the thing of contention. Do you see this? The very thing that is so beautiful, we don't deserve grace, because of Christ's death on the cross and the resurrected, all of that, the very thing that is beautiful and precious, we turn into the point of contention. And we look at others' means of acceptance of grace, and it causes us to be envious. And we're talking right now Christian to Christian. When we, each other, look at how each other are receiving grace, and we get envious. The scripture here in a moment is going to talk about the unbelievers, people who have no concept of God. How is it even possible that they could give thanks to the one who's gracious? You see what I'm saying? What does that mean? You and I have a phenomenal opportunity at the very precious idea of grace to be pointing back to the one that's gracious. Instead, the world looks at envious, judgmental Christians Looking at one another and saying, well, I don't have what they have. God must not like me as much. No, you don't get it. It's his plan of grace. That is grace. We don't deserve anything. You don't even deserve to live, yet you are. Be thankful for that. And so our opportunity to communicate the gospel through our means of grace is ruined because the world says they don't even understand grace. They don't even like grace. They get envious at one another's grace. So why should we ever come near this conversation of grace with a Christian? It's pretty heart-wrenching, isn't it? The very thing that we have most blessed in our life, grace, we turn it in to a contentious heart between one another. So, a bunch of unbelieving satraps see Daniel again receiving favor And the question is, how will these unbelievers respond to Daniel's measure of grace? Well, let's check it out, verse 4. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Look at this. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was in him. They're looking and they find no character issues. Okay, um, let's say you want to run for governor. Uh, How many of you would actually do that just by raise of hand? Okay, we have a couple right there. Thanks. No, okay. 
you want to run for governor, right? And obviously you'd have to have a little bit more, you know, swag than you do now per se, right? You want to run for governor. What would happen instantly if you had the power, you were growing in the government, and you announce, right? You do some really public, awesome, official announcement. You put it on your relationship status on Facebook. I'm running for governor. You know what I'm saying? What would instantly happen? There would be teams of people that would instantly be looking into your character, trying to find loopholes. Escalate it a hundred million times fold if you're running for president. There are teams of people literally in the government, all they do is try to find dirt and junk on the people that are, that are running for president. So that maybe, just maybe, they can slander their integrity so much so that the other candidate looks better. Daniel goes through this same kind of search from a whole bunch of people fueled by envy, and they, listen, they can't find a thing. They find no error, no fault. There is nothing in his dirty closet. There's nothing there. One of the things that many of you love and others of you hate about the Midwest is the seasons. It's crazy, right? That in one week in the Midwest, it can be literally 80 degrees and three days later, 20, right? Like giving all of us the black lung of death. You know what I'm saying? Like in those days, we just get extremely sick. Many of you, how many of you guys just love the Midwest, right? Okay, right? Come on, man. This is where we live. This is where, you know, come on, right? All right. It's crazy about the Midwest. The seasons are drastic changes. Uh, interestingly enough about Ecuador, it's called Ecuador because it's on the equator. Okay, right? And on the equator, because of the solstice of the sun and the serifical force, anyway, it, it, the seasons, like, there's not a big change. Like, one day in the jungle, it's 90. The next day, it's 90. The day after that, it's 90. It's like 90 and hot and humid all, all the time. But in the Midwest, things change. I would venture to say that for many of you, you've come here tonight and you feel like your faith, your trusting God, your relationship with God changes as much, if not more, as the seasons in the Midwest. It fluctuates. It has this ebb and flow, changing literally with every life circumstance. Everything that you face, every challenge that comes up, it just makes your faith go up and down daily. How many of you feel at times, not by raising a hand, just by thinking about it, that you're just constantly on this roller coaster? Some days you feel connected with God. The next day you feel completely disconnected. The next day you feel like you're on this, whatever, as Christians would call this, spiritual high. You're just constantly fluctuating. Daniel hasn't wavered. From when we met him when he was 15 years old to now when he's 80 plus, he has not wavered. Do you understand what's happened since Daniel, since we met him? Uh, an entire empire has risen and fall. There have been five different kings. Some of his friends have been killed. He was kidnapped. He's been challenged. There's been two death threats on his life, up and down, all around him. And yet Daniel has stayed completely unwavered. It's as if any time something comes up, you have two options. No way. Surprise, right? No way this could ever happen to me. No way I could lose my job. No way I have this financial struggle. No way. Or, there's this other option that it appears like Daniel has tapped into. Okay. 
No matter what happens, it doesn't change who my God is, and it doesn't change my response to my God. It noth- it no- nothing changes. Kingdoms can rise and fall, but it doesn't change God, and it doesn't change my response to Him. That's what Daniel is saying. So when our faith fluctuates like a Midwestern season, what we're saying is, God can change. Our circumstances can affect our response of Him. What Daniel has done, listen, as he has put all of his life in the proper place, underneath God's sovereignty. God has a plan. God's going to accomplish his plan by his power and for his glory. And no matter what happens, kingdom rise and falls, God's plan. Death threat on my life, God's plan. Everything, he keeps sliding underneath God's plan. And what does that do to his faith? Unwavered. Unwavered. We have, I would venture to say, a bunch of these surprises out there that we haven't placed under God's plan. We're still surprised that things could happen in our life due to the fall. And and we get surprised by those things and they hang out here in no way land, in surprise land. Instead of instantly being brought to underneath the sovereign plan of God. You see this. That's the difference between most of us and Daniel. Daniel's faith never changes. It is unwavering no matter what happens because every day, he says, no matter what happens to me today, God is not different. God is unchanging. His character won't fail me. So you can bring whatever you want. You can kill me. It doesn't matter. God doesn't change and my response to him doesn't change. It's obedience and love, right? But we, all of a sudden, loss of job, complete chaos. We don't know where to go, what to do, and it hangs out here in surprise land, in no way land. And I'm not saying that we don't mourn at death. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying when a family member dies, we say, oh, God is sovereign, we don't have to mourn. That's not, that's not the point. We mourn, or we give thanks, or we experience joy, but it keeps coming back to God is sovereign, God is good, He's accomplishing a plan. Do you see what I'm saying, church? This is why these guys look into Daniel's character, they can't find a thing. 65 plus years worth of possible slip-ups, and they don't find one thing wrong, except, except, Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the what? With the law of his God. We only have one beef with this guy. He only has one character flaw. His connection with God. That's his dirty laundry. Oh, to have that said about us, church. Come on. Oh, to have that spoken of us. No integrity issues. Trustworthy. Their only point of contention with that dude is his love of his God. That's the only thing we can find. You start pushing some of those buttons, and maybe then we'll see what happens. To have that said of us. An 80-year-old man in the longevity of his faith 
gets to deal with a whole bunch of satraps who say, well, I guess we better attack his relationship with God because that's the only peace. Can I ask you then, friends, this? If you were running for governor, what would people find? The internet trail that you've left. The tax shifting that you've done. The pieces of your integrity that would soon rise to the top because truth is buoyant. What would surface? I struggle a lot thinking that I can run from God at times, right? That I can hide this, tuck this away, that as long as I'm sitting in my closet somehow that God doesn't see or know. What I love about Daniel is I get the sense that no matter whether he's alone or in front of a, a, a party of a thousand, that his faith doesn't change. That he never feels like he has to put on a show when everyone's around like this. That he never feels like in this context I better act like something that I'm really not alone. How about for you? Someone did a deep search of your integrity, of your character. What would the newspaper say the next day, right? So this is their plan. Let's attack Daniel and his relationship with his God. Let's see how this goes for him. Verse 6. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. We've seen this kind of rhetoric over and over in the scriptures. It's a common phrase to beef up a king's ego. Verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefix and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lovely den of lions. They're lying. Look at what they say here. All the presidents of the kingdom have come to this conclusion. Problem is, we know that one of the presidentes is who? Is Daniel. He hasn't come to this conclusion. They're lying. They're filled with envy. And now they're deceitful. And they come to King Darius, King Cyrus rather, beef him up. Oh, king, live forever. Here's the deal. Why don't you make a decree, anyone who prays to, prays to any other God except you, for the next 30 days, they get thrown to the den of lions. Now, in ancient um, Medo-Persian times, it's interesting to note that they were really, really interested in the law. In fact, so much so that any time that they would pass a law, it was binding. In other words, listen to this. You couldn't go back and change a law after it was signed. You couldn't. Once the law was a law, it was a law until the empire was done. Now, listen to this. Early on in this passage, what did it say? He sets up these presidents and the satraps so that no what? You guys see it in verse 2? So that the king may not suffer loss. Hold on a second. Do you remember when I showed you the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and the four empires that are to come? The Medo-Persian empire was, uh, was represented by what? Do you remember the dream? It was represented by what? What kind of metal? Silver. Now, interesting to note at this point. Cyrus becomes one of the greatest taxers in ancient times ever. He had created, and I taught this back when we were looking at the dream, he created this tax system that was all based upon the exchanging of silver that allowed his laws to flourish. 
And so here we are, these satraps, governors, all of these guys trying to take advantage of his own structure. And they come to him and they're like, look, no one should be praying to you. No one should be praying to any God except you. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document an injunction. Okay? Now, at this point, I need you to understand this is not a cartoon. All right? This is real government policy. This is real life on the line. This isn't a cartoon character jumping around. This isn't a bunch of guys who have gathered and said, Oh, King, live forever. Look. No, this is real government, real life and death. And a real king signing a document that says anyone who goes against this decree will be killed. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, when he knows it's been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God As he had what? As he had what? Done what? Previously. He changes nothing. Nothing changes about his rhythm. He hears that it's been signed and he has a moment to to wrestle. Okay, well, I can can surely get by by just kind of like praying, you know, like, and dear God, you know, like by mumbling to myself. I can surely get by by closing the windows. Uh, In Babylon, which is probably where they're still at uh, to some extent, is the, the structure of the homes, there would be this, this top room. And in that room, there would be some, uh, what do they call those shingle things that are like lattice? Is that what they call? Lettuce? What do they call that? Shutters. Okay. They, w- they would have like shutters that would be able to be opened, even like, like modern day expensive, those white things. You guys know what I'm saying? They would have those. And so the picture here is he goes up to this top room, and the windows are open toward Jerusalem, And it says, just like he always had done, he gets on his knees and prays. Now, if you enjoy secrets in the scripture, if you you enjoy times when A plus B equals C, you have to just love this. This is your moment. Earlier, I'm talking about how Daniel has unwavering faith. He is not changed by circumstance. He just is consistent No matter what happens, sovereignty of God. God doesn't change, my response to him doesn't change. And my big question at that point was, okay, so how do you get that? How does one get to the place that you have this faith that no matter what happens, it doesn't change? You're just steady, you're even keel. No seasonal fluctuation of your walk with God. Apparently, there's this connection that Daniel has with his God that is not rote discipline, okay? Because you guys see pray three times a day and like all of a sudden old school Sunday school where the teachers got the belt out, right, and like whipped you if you weren't praying and memorizing your scripture. Like some of those thoughts come up in your mind. This hardcore discipline, hardcore religion. Has this guy seen at all religious in his 65 years that we've known him? It's all joy. It's all fruit. It's all blessing. So apparently his secret is that he actually communes with his God. K. 
can you survive without prayer? Let me say it another way. Do you think you're surviving without prayer? Do you feel like somehow that this, by coming here and sitting in this beautiful maroon pew, that that gives you some kind of connection with God so that all of your relationship with Him can be based upon these moments corporately? Have you convinced yourself that somehow you can survive without communing daily with God? What I'm saying is, Daniel, he sees prayer as survival. It's not discipline. It's not rote. It's, I have to to survive. If I don't pray, if I don't commune, no, you don't understand. I'm not going to be silent about it. I'm not going to change my rhythm. I'm not going to change who I am. That's not what I've done all of my life. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And God, I believe, no matter what he does, will receive glory by my life. So you know what? I'm on my knees and I'm pleading to my God. An amazing picture. Now look at the way this ends. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and they found Daniel making two words here, petition and plea before his God. Now, those of you that know me well, you know that I'm obsessed with the word plead. I believe that the scriptural understanding of prayer is pleading. And when I picture pleading, I don't picture this. Oh, dear Jesus, right? Like, thank you so much for... Pleading is Fist clenched on my face, the psalmist praying, God, incline your ear to me. Do not leave me alone. You're my rock and my refuge and my, my redeemer. That's pleading. And some of you have gotten so careful, so safe with your prayers, that it just become this rote dinner prayer where we all bless all the rolls and the turkey and then we're on our way. I'm ending here tonight Because I feel like we have to wrestle with this concept before we even finish and begin to understand the whole concept of Daniel in the lion's den. This man has tapped into the beautiful survival piece that prayer is. And you and I find ourselves not even praying. Not seeing its significance not believing that it has any power, and yet with our mouth claiming to have relationship with this great God. And yet I would imagine that many of us, if asked, do you believe that prayer is quintessential to your survival with God? You would say, well, you know, it's by grace, but I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not living like it's life or death. Now listen, I step back from all of this and I say, all right, Mark, so what? We want this, some of you. You want this kind of unwavering faith not moved by spring, summer, and fall. You want that, you desire that, you long for that, but it's like, where 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 do I start? Where does this kind of faith, where does this kind of connection and communion, where does it start? I'm so glad you asked because I want all of us tonight journey together about where it can start tonight. Are you with me? I believe there are two reasons why most of you don't pray. 
The first is unbelief. You don't pray because you don't believe that prayer has any power, that God's really listening. You believe more that your prayers are hitting the ceiling or that you're literally talking to yourself than really thinking. That by pleading to God that somehow you have connection and in, and in not believing what you're doing is diminishing what Christ did on the cross. Because of the cross, Christ is the high priest. Now making intercession between us and God. So by not believing what you're saying is what you did on the cross, Christ was good for my sins, but the whole high priest thing I really don't care about. It's to make a mockery of the gospel. Unbelief. And the second and more prevalent is shame. It's like talking to your wife when you're angry, right? Isn't it so tough? My wife and I were at Texas Roadhouse last night. Any uh, fans? Okay. It's amazing. I talk about it all the time. Just enjoy rubbing that butter in my face. It's incredible. Um, my wife and I were having a discussion um, that was uh, pretty, pretty pertinent, pretty poignant. Trying to have a date night, and we got into a discussion. You know how that goes. And uh, we're talking about a good subject, and we're wrestling together. And I found myself at one point just, I mean, my wife was calling me out. And, and I, I found myself, like, just feeling shamed, you know, like I hadn't led her well, and I had done some things poorly, hadn't really appreciated her like I should have. And at that moment, like, there is nothing in me that just wants to talk to her. You see what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting in my shame, and you know what, I got... I'm just going to keep eating rolls, you know? And, 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 and this, is, this is a totally true story last night. So me and Heidi, we sit there for three minutes in silence. And, you know, silence for me, difficult to come by. But it, it came last night, right? Because I'm just, I'm sitting there in shame. And so finally, I was like, so, so, so how's your salad, you know? And you kind of break, listen, so you kind of break the ice. Pretty soon I realize I need to repent and apologize. And we move on, you see? But the thought, the lie of shame, is that I can never approach. And as long as you believe it, you sit alone, you see? As long as you believe that lie, that you can't approach, that I can't come because of shame. I cannot come because I'm condemned. As long as you believe that, you sit there alone. When all of the while, the beautiful grace of Christ is, no, 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 you don't understand. There is no shame. There's no condemnation. Come now. You know? And so many of you, you don't pray not just because of unbelief, but you pray. You don't pray because of shame. I can't approach God. I feel so horrible because of the things that I've done. And so it becomes that relationship that becomes distance because you just feel overwhelming, burdened shame. So what are we to do, church? We're not praying like Daniel. We don't have unwavering faith like Daniel. Where, what are we to do? Where are we to start? We start by praying and pleading the two things that are our biggest struggle. Let me explain. In Mark, there is this awesome picture of this man who brings his son. Listen, this man who brings his son who has an unclean spirit. And this man comes to Jesus and says, can you please heal my son? And him and Jesus have this interaction. And Jesus says, can I? And the man says this. He says, I believe, help my what? Help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. 
I, I resonate with that so much. Some days I feel faithful, other days I feel doubting. But you know what? We need to start pleading. I believe, but help my unbelief. The second thing we need to do is to start praying against our shame. To start pleading and praying that God would cleanse us from our iniquities, that he would wash us white as snow. So here's what I'm calling us to, church. A 32-day, we're calling it 8 to 8, December 8th to January 8th, a 32-day detox. Where we together say, you know what? We don't have prayer figured out. We have an, uncon- an inconsistent faith. And together we're saying, so where do we start? We start by detoxing from the world and the flesh. That's where we start. And we start simply by praying one simple prayer. Put this slide up. This is our prayer for these 32 days, and then we'll celebrate on Sunday, January 9th. God, I want to believe you are able. Please help my unbelief. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51.2 and the Mark passage combined. We plead against unbelief. We plead against shame. And I think what we're going to find is God will start breaking down those self-perceived barriers and our communion with him will grow. And what Psalm 55 says, and this is where Daniel gets this, morning, evening, and noonday, we'll find ourselves yearning to be on our knees. That we'll begin to see prayer, not just as this rote Christian religious experience, but as survival. Let's stand together.